Hello, college football fans, and welcome to the second episode of College Football Throwdown. I am your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello. For for those of you who didn't listen to our pilot episode, um, we are a podcast that is all about uh, college football, uh, a podcast for college football fans by college football fans, and we want to um, uh, keep our discussions uh, progressing from national the national level to the conference. conference level, in our case specifically the Big Ten, due to our affiliation with uh, Nebraska football, which would be the third level of conversation that we want to get into. Um, so we hope to address all three of these levels of college football every week, you know, based on the news that's come out, and uh, talk about the sport that we love. Outstanding. Yes. And uh, since the last podcast, we found a website to host it on, uh, podomatic.com. If you go to uh, footballthrowdown.podomatic.com, you can find our website and where these podcasts will be uploaded. We also have an iTunes page, College Football Throwdown. You can find our uh, episodes there as well, if that's your preferred method of listening to podcasts. And you can email us, if you'd like to email us any questions, at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. That's huskerpete13 at gmail.com. All right. So we're going to dive into the national topics uh, to start with today, and um, one of them that we wanted to talk about was the recent, uh, uh, what do we want to say? Well, the recent decision right. uh, regarding uh, the proposal for early signing. Uh, there was a proposal that was uh, being considered to add a uh, early signing day to college football, much like is done in a number of other NCAA-sanctioned sports like basketball, of course, you're familiar with that one. But even some of the other uh, lesser sports have two signing periods as well. So the idea that uh, uh, the, the, the main you know, uh, sport activity of football, which brings in a lot of money and revenue and, and interest, um, doesn't have that two signing periods actually makes it uh, more unique, if you will, among NCAA uh, uh, sports. Mm-hmm. Right, and we were you were talking about actually how um, our former the Nebraska football program's former coach Bo Pelini actually had a more uh, radical idea for um, recruiting periods that uh, players should just be allowed to sign at like any time. Right. Versus this is more of a when this know, discussion compromise. just began, uh, which was you know I mean it's been kind of in the consciousness for years, but I mean it it really started to gain momentum about a year year and a half ago, I'd say eighteen months ago or whatever, and fairly early on in that in that dialogue where it became a national conversation with talk radio and such. Um, one of the people that that kind of threw out the 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 other alternative idea was was Bo actually, and he uh, proposed that that actually the heck with an early signing period. What would what would be preferred in his mind was to go ahead and uh, uh, have the ability for you know players or or athletes to sign uh, a letter of intent whenever they wanted with certain very simple stipulations. They, they, you would want to make sure that you alleviated any, um, you know, recruiting weekend or visit high, so to speak, and force them to to take say 72 hours 
after their recruiting visit before they could make a final decision and, and sign a document that was in any way binding for them and committing them to a particular school. But his idea was effectively the immediate signing opportunity where if a, if a, a player went to a particular uh, school and enjoyed the visit, found that, that that school had everything that they were looking for and was certain that was the school that they wanted to go to, that they could just go ahead and finish the process and say yes and, and physically sign a letter of intent and be done with it uh, so that uh, they didn't have to deal with all of this you know, constant uh, continued recruiting off on the off chance that just maybe there's a 1% chance that, that they're going to change their mind. I mean, if they're one of the premier, say, you know, 200, 250 athletes in the country that are highly pursued by large numbers of schools, uh, you know, that tends to get taxing on kids. They don't even realize it, I think, and then it just kind of sucks them in. And, <laughs> and then those last few weeks or even months uh, before signing day, you know, can't get there fast enough because they just get overwhelmed and almost exhausted by the process. And so you could eliminate a lot of that. And, and then the counterside to that, which was kind of one of Boy, Bo's main points in, in his proposal, was, you know, let's get rid of this so that uh, all these superficial offers that tend to happen where universities, even, even like uh, Nebraska or any major university, they often will offer hundreds of players when none of them supposedly have more than 25 scholarships to offer. Uh, it seems kind of silly that, that so many offers are being extended. Well, that's because you don't know who's going to say yes and who's going to say no. And they're extending offers to a lot of players that, frankly, if they had said immediately yes at the time that the offer was extended, they would then learn that, well, that wasn't really a, a committable offer, is, which is now a, a new term in the lexicon of, of recruiting is, did, is the offer a committable offer or not? So basically they're, they're trying to play the cat and mouse game just like the athletes have uh, converted the word commitment into reservation, as you and I have talked on many occasions. So uh, this, all this discussion with the NCAA was intended to create, kind of get back around to the early signing period, an early signing period that would have occurred in December, uh, which effectively was about a month or maybe five weeks ahead, six weeks ahead of the uh, signing day. Now, now, there are arguments to be made to say, that sounds stupid. Why would you put a signing date that was just six weeks ahead of the other one? That, that's just going to accelerate, and, and the, uh, the December date would become the de facto signing day because most players would end up signing then, and most coaches and teams would strive to get all of their athletes that they had committed up to that point to sign in December. They wouldn't want anybody you know, trailing along and not signing at that point in time, right? The mm -hmm. ones they wanted, they would want to secure right there so that it was over. Although, as we discussed, it's possible that that could be like a, something to help the recruiters in that if you don't sign with us in December, then you, let, you sort of start to become a little bit more aware of that player and are like, okay, maybe they're not as committed to us as we thought. We should... Right. for someone else to maybe take its place. Right. It, it, you kind of expose the, the people who are who are not fully on board and, and they're forced to kind of show their cards a little bit uh, with regard to, um, you know, you might call it the shit or get off the pot, uh, uh, you know, provision of the process. But but uh, but the, the, the bottom line, though, is, is that that vote did occur uh, through the NCAA committee and they decided to postpone postpone. Uh, any action on it 
uh, for at least another year. So it's definitely not going to happen this year. And I wonder, based on their uh, vote, uh, whether th that will cause it to kind of lose a little bit, little bit of momentum, uh, or at least maybe force it to go get revisited and maybe redefined. You know, I, I think there's a stronger argument to be made that that uh, if you're going to have an early signing period, that you would have it uh, quite a bit earlier. That you might have it after the say about the first third of the high school football season. So so it would maybe happen in uh, you know mid September like from September 15th to the 25th would be the 10-day window for early signing so that anybody who had gone through a lot of visitations and stuff through the summer um, would and was pretty sure that what they wanted, and then you give them a little bit of time to kind of reconnect and get into their, their high school football season, and then they would be able to make it final if they wanted to. So you kind of think it might almost have a better chance of going through if it goes for more extreme change versus the simple six-week jump. Yes, I, I do. I, I, I think that uh, what, they're, what they would want to do is try to create a little bit more of a gap between that day and the, the, the day of the ultimate signing so that people could, or I should say coaches and teams, could kind of reset and they would know where they're at, which, which kids actually signed with them, which ones didn't, and, and because of which one signed and didn't sign at all the other schools, you'd know what the pool of available top talent was at that point. You'd know that, you know, probably 80% of the top, you know, 400 players in the country as ranked by these ranking services would probably be committed and then signed. So all those guys are off the board, and now you're fighting over, you know, 20, 25% of the athletes for the remainder of that time and then exposing any late bloomers from your, you know, from their senior seasons, guys who came on strong as seniors but maybe weren't in the picture, uh, you know, uh, before that. Right. Although if we, the backside or the repercussion, I should say, of that decision would be that would make the earlier aggressing or earlier recruiting all the more aggressive because now instead of, you know, them signing in, like, what was it now, February? February. Instead of them signing in February, now they're signing in September. So now the recruiters are trying to drive a commitment correct. even earlier than they have been before. Correct, correct. Which which leads to the whole issue, which we'll talk uh, about uh, more, I'm sure, not only on this podcast, but, but in future podcasts, because I think it's one of the major issues here, um, and that is the, the issue of... Uh, uh, official visits versus unofficial visits and um, it, it, a lot of this stuff all ties together because it's all about leverages and and advantages that one school or group of schools has over another group of schools and what are the rules going to be that are that are going to govern the entire sport and they they have so many rules and yet there are some of these uh, circumstances that that create massive inequities and as these, as the dynamics of this process change, they need to change the rules to anticipate those new realities. And and that's why this subject is even coming up now, as opposed to having come up years ago. It would have been a non-issue, you know, 25, 30 years ago, because people weren't recruiting that early. You know, mm -hmm. uh, coaches didn't even focus on that until, uh, you know, during their senior seasons and things of that nature. Now this whole recruiting process has gotten so accelerated. So did that shift come about like during the early 2000s? Like... No, no, no. It was before that. It was oh, before that. Um, I, I would suggest that, that, that it probably began to happen 
but not across the board. You know, it started to happen at some premier schools in the 80s, like the late 1980s, and then just uh, progressed through the 90s. Uh, by the uh, mid-90s, it was full-blown going at that point. You know, what is now rivals and networks like that that didn't exist back in that time frame, uh, the internet didn't exist, but for example, the one that, that, that I followed that's been around for many, many years at that time was just a uh, published magazine, okay? It was just a paper uh, magazine that you that I would receive in the mail once a week called Huskers Illustrated. It still exists today, okay? And that Huskers Illustrated had an 800 number, and you could call the 800 number and you would pay <laughs> money. It was like a, it was a, uh, it was a 900 number type of thing where you would pay you know, uh, two dollars a minute or whatever to listen to updates about who was who was interested and wow. who was signing and all that sort of stuff before there was ever the internet. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a blast from the past for sure. <laughs> yeah, Goodness. and I and I will admit to have been uh, a a subscriber to, to all that. <laughs> and I can remember the old days of the uh, of uh, when when all you could do is you know connect up with a with a modem and a and a baud rate of twenty eight eight or whatever and uh and i would hook up to be able to go online and and be able to get the initial updates from from those kinds of things what what is now rivals and 24 7 and espn 300 and all those different websites uh, you know um that that was the precursor to all of them they had magazines that came out it was all paper uh, that right. back then so now, i think before we move on to our next uh, national discussion we need to crack our beer oh, as yes. is our tradition this is this is our, our our tradition that we've created for this so we can't do this without having some beverage so it's probably necessary to do that there we go All now right. we're talking <laughs> now the ball's really rolling that's right okay yes. and the next topic we wanted to discuss are the kind of a hot topic issue right now within college football the satellite camps that a lot of the schools have been participating in. Right, right. So um, to, get, to kind of lay the groundwork on this, of course, uh, uh, basically there are some uh, conferences that that allow and it's legal for teams to have satellite camps and other um, schools where it is not legal to, to do that. Uh, specifically, the SEC and the ACC do not have uh, the ability to have satellite camps. They have rules against... The participation in that, and uh, um, but then there's a lot, a lot of other of uh, the Power Five conferences and other conferences that don't have a rule against that, and so uh, there has kind of been a recognition here that hey, let's go where the athletes live, right? And why wouldn't we go down there uh, into those uh, athlete-rich areas and see if we can uh, expand the exposure? And I think it's uh, indelibly linked to the issue of official visits. And, and, and I'll, I'll retouch that issue that those things are linked in my opinion. One of the reasons why there is a stronger motivation by schools who are not in the athlete rich areas of the country and high population areas of the country want to go down there is obviously they want access to those athletes. They wanna be able to build relationships with those athletes. And, and a satellite camp, which is uh, basically taking the show on the road, taking your coaching staff and other staff members down to a location, uh, going in, either entering into a relationship with a, uh, a smaller university or high school that's already holding a camp or creating one in a joint venture type of arrangement with, with somebody down in that area, and then promoting it and, and driving traffic and, and sign-ups 
to it so that you can get exposure to some athletes. And that basically allows you to get exposure to those kids and have those kids come and get coached by your staff uh, in situations where those those same players would not be able, they wouldn't be able to afford it, uh, they wouldn't be able to have the time because it wouldn't be in proximity, they wouldn't be able to go all the way to Lincoln, Nebraska, for example, in, the, in Nebraska's case, to, to visit the campus and to be coached by our staff, by traveling on the road and going down there um, uh, to, that, to those regions. Uh, the University of Nebraska is able to introduce itself to players that they wouldn't normally be able to do. That's, and, go ahead. That's true, and it is particularly beneficial to smaller schools like Nebraska that don't have the population nearby and don't have the athletes Correct. just walking in the door on unofficial visits. Right. But um, but then there are schools like you know Michigan, obviously gets a fair amount of unofficial visits, has lots of athletes in their backyard, and they're still being very aggressive with the satellite camps. Correct. And, and the, the reality is, is yes, you're right. Michigan has a, a lot more access to athletes than, say, a Nebraska or an Iowa or, a, or maybe even a Minnesota. Uh, uh, but uh, Michigan recognizes the value of still getting their national brand, okay, of U of M uh, football into the, the center of these really rich areas of college football. And if you can build some relationships or identify some athletes that you wouldn't have otherwise found, well, that's a huge plus, right? Mm -hmm. And that makes it really easy to justify all the expenditures. I mean, it's not cheap to do that. And it's interesting. Uh, we've we've obviously done uh, a little bit of reading on this uh, before uh, the, the podcast here. And one of the interesting articles was one that was actually written by uh, the uh, Kane Sport uh, website that... that uh, promotes or uh, supports uh, the Miami Hurricanes. And they were writing specifically about the implications of Nebraska being at, at Florida A&M University uh, where they had one of their satellite camps. And they had 400 campers there uh, and a number of kids, including two or three that Nebraska was able to you know, observe in the various drills that were going on as part of the camp and immediately offered three or four of those players scholarship offers just based on what the coaches were able to see of those athletes uh, uh, during the you know, day, day and a half of their camping activity. So, so that's a big deal. And so, of course, a Michigan or any school would say there's value in doing that. Now, the question is, it's not, as, it's not equal right? It's way more beneficial for Nebraska to go south and to get all this exposure that they normally wouldn't get. Um, so they're really motivated to do this, right? Whereas, uh, say, a, a Florida, a University of Florida, or, an, or a Miami, uh, in fact, uh, one of the quotes in this article was directly from Miami's co coach, Al Golden, who expressed the concern that he couldn't imagine leaving his campus for a week uh, to go to satellite camps mm -hmm because of all the official or all the unofficial visits that that he would miss during the course of just one week of time because so many athletes were coming to visit his school all the time now i'm i'm here to tell you you know in any given week if if nebraska has 3 or 4 or 5 um, kids unofficially visiting other than nebraska kids and kids from the general you know, what we would call a 500 or even 200-mile radius of Lincoln, you know, one day's drive type of thing. Uh, I mean, that would be a huge number, five or six. And, and Al Golden is saying, I can't afford to miss a week because there's so many of them, I would, I would miss all these players, right. right? Which is a great microcosm of the discrepancy between 
you know, these different schools, you know, just the disadvantage that a school like Nebraska is working against in the recruiting game just because they don't have that kind of talent literally walking in the door. Right. Now, before we sound too woe is us, okay, with this, (laughs) uh, the the fact is, is that it is what it is. And, but, but I think the, the, the solution is some combination of uh, some kind of uh, rules that govern how the satellite camp arrangement might work that was reasonable and and not uh, doesn't create a free-for-all and two that it maybe increases the awareness and discussion about providing official visits uh, I think I think providing official visits and uh, you know early uh, as early as maybe the second semester of a player's junior year might make a lot of sense and might address some of these concerns that the smaller population schools might have uh, because it would allow them to obviously select and target athletes that they were interested in for a formal invitation to the campus earlier so that they could have conversation and, and, and build relationships and, and, in fact, get with their parents. So, again, there's all kinds of issues I, I just mentioned there. Uh, the, the early recruits, I mean the early visits, uh, making the visits include parents, which currently it does not. Um, I mean, being able to pay for the parents to come is, in my opinion, a necessary step that the NCAA should do no matter what else they ever do. I mean, they've got to get parents uh, with those kids, just period. That's just stupid that they don't. Um, And it really hurts, I think, the the types of decisions that the players make and the kind of shenanigans that goes on. I think some of this shenanigans that goes on where kids are playing uh, coaches off each other and they're trying to you know, uh, create the best possible set of opportunities. And frankly, they're going up there to, to party without mom and dad in their shadow for a weekend uh, is, 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 is a big problem. And they could address that by uh, uh, opening the door to pay for the parents so the parents aren't having to foot their own bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would definitely be a help, particularly to, you know, any schools that are really trying to pitch the student-athlete right. side of their program, you know, and showing how the college is going to make their, you know, son into a good young man, you know, and working adult, that sort of thing. Right, right. Well, it it just allows them to sell the program to the the people who are likely, in most cases, the part, the biggest part of the decision-making group in a a given family. Uh, Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just the kid making the decision, but you'd like to think that the parent's opinion is going to matter. To, to, to some degree, if not to a large degree, uh, in the in the decision process that the parent that the kids make. Mm-hmm. Although know? the discussion, another part of this discussion is that the schools that are currently not doing these satellite camps for the SEC and the ACC because it's against their conference rules, but they've already said that they are going to petition the NCAA to change the rules about these camps. And if the rules aren't changed, then they are going to join the fray, so to speak by next year. Right. And while uh, you know, a school like Nebraska might maintain a certain advantage because our coach has experience with these camps in the past at Oregon State, you know, and we're getting excited about doing them and all that for now, within a couple of years, you know, if the likes of Alabama and Florida and Miami uh, start going to these same camps that we're going to in Florida and Alabama and such and start trying to keep the talent that they have in their state, in their state, and trying to you know, defend their territory, as it were, from the outside coaches, then the the impact of the camps, the positive impact of the camps for 
uh, the more northern schools would be significantly lessened. Absolutely. And there are so many complicating factors. I mean, if this becomes a free-for-all, you could see all the negative things. Bottom line is, you know, one of the biggest advantages of the satellite camps is this is supposed to be kind of a quiet period. You know, you're not supposed to be able to go out and visit visit uh, athletes during this period of time. Okay, it's not a, a, an active recruiting period where they can go on the road and be directly recruiting athletes. Okay, so mm-hmm. there is an exception for instruction for camps. There's a specific exception for that, and so it it opens the door to all kinds of uh, of additional recruiting and stuff that they were trying to protect, so that they could protect the kids, uh, the the young athletes. Um, you know, um, summer right, and so that they're not getting consumed into the recruiting process so enormously at that point, and and it's also trying to protect the the coaches from themselves. And, and the fact that, you know, they, they will, they're a paranoid bunch and they're an intensely competitive bunch. So they're going to always assume somebody else is out recruiting them. So they're going to make sure that that never happens. So they, they won't sleep because they're going to be trying to, you know, recruit, recruit, recruit. Right. And so if you don't have these quiet periods and such uh, during the course of a, a year and have certain rules about the recruiting season, they'd be doing it all the time. And satellite camps right now is, is being exposed as kind of a, an end around a, uh, a loophole, if you will, uh, within the system that gives you the opportunity to have those conversations and build those relationships. And if the camps became like a free-for-all, it would be interesting to see what sort of power that would give to the people who are actually running these camps because now there's intense competition from a number of schools, a number of coaching staffs who want to hold these camps Mm-hmm. At their uh, at their universities, mm-hmm. you know, at their high schools or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and now they get to you know weed through you know the ones who they want to get in, you know, who are willing to pay them the most or mm-hmm. offer them the best exactly. deal or whatever, you know, and maybe the prices for the camps will go up because they'll realize that these kids are getting really valuable instruction from a bunch of professional level coaches, right. you know, right. Yeah, so there's a bunch of things. And so, you know, I think there's some leverage points there. I, I hope that it ends in dialogue at the NCAA level to, to standardize the rules and that it includes some dialogue about uh, getting official visits moved up into that junior year or second semester of junior year so that so that these uh, smaller uh, population area schools have at least the chance to build relationships with these athletes before they make their decision. Right. Although that does then have the implication of the fact that schools like uh, Alabama and a lot of the ones in the SEC really don't want that to happen because then that forces them to use their own official visits, whereas right now they can just rely on the fact that a bunch of kids are going to show up at their doorstep during the summer on unofficial visits and they don't have to pay for them. Right. And they'll come in and get the whole tour and all that. build relationships. Whereas if... The rules change, and Nebraska is paying for kids to come see Nebraska and giving them the ritzy, you know, Full showroom tour. Yeah. yeah, you know, during that same period, now those kids are going to be asking for the same thing from Alabama, right? Right. When they didn't have and to do that before. Absolutely true, and all legitimate reasons why they wouldn't want this to happen. But but at the same time, I think from an equity standpoint, as at the NCAA level. They're going to have to try to figure out a way to do that uh, or somehow, some other way, slow down the access to athletes that the local areas, the local schools have with these athletes in some way uh, so that they're not able to basically be gobbling up 
uh, by building you know these deepened relationships with them before the other schools even really get a chance to get them to campus. Exactly. Uh, it's just too, it's too unfair, and they know it. So mm -hmm. I think at some point, you know, uh, cooler heads need to prevail in that, or it's going to create you know a disparity within the sport that will make it kind of boring because it'll become a very regional sport again. Mm -hmm. So they do want to avoid for right. the purposes of TV contracts Absolutely. and everything. Absolutely. You know, certainly money so, so anyway, the, uh, to kind of summarize on that, then the, this satellite camp is a fascinating thing. I mean, Michigan's done it. Harbaugh's, Harbaugh's made big news this summer on it, uh, the coach at Michigan. Certainly uh, uh, Nebraska's had yeah, some great Colorado. success with it. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Yeah, Colorado's been uh, doing it. Uh, Wisconsin did it. You know, a, a, even Ohio State, uh, mm -hmm. I think, uh, had a few camps. Yeah, Massachusetts. So it's everybody, everybody in the northern regions is doing it. Um, and even the Pac-12, uh, and, and, and throughout the Pac-12, they've been doing it for a few years out there, but within, kind of within their own conference, you know, where almost mm -hmm. everybody had some kind of a satellite camp in, in the state of California, for example. Right. So anyway, fascinating stuff. Uh, will be interesting to see the background in the background what's happening over the course of the season, the stuff that's not going on on the field over the course of the season. There's going to be an awful lot of positioning and 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 uh, you know posturing going on among uh, the Power Five conference commissioners and individual athletic directors to 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 you know impose their influence on some of these uh, very important issues. Mm -hmm. um, let, but uh, let's let's jump real quickly into. Uh, the Nebraska aspect of the satellite camps. For those uh, on the podcast who might enjoy the Nebraska aspect of this, um, you know, we just uh, completed a, a week in which we were scheduled to do five uh, satellite camps. Ended up only doing four because one was kind of canceled due to weather. But uh, but they were able to hit Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Miami, Florida, uh, Dallas, and uh, uh, and uh, Los Angeles. So they were able to hit some of the key recruiting, you know, bastions that they've been targeting, and they were able to get exposure to, uh, you know, some estimates of, you know, 800 plus, maybe even a thousand athletes that they were able to see and evaluate, and they extended offers to players that were going all the way out to 2018. So, um, you know, kids that are going into their sophomore year um, were getting scholarship offers from Nebraska, and you know, so that's a big deal. Like and, going into their sophomore year? Yeah, they're year? going into their sophomore year. They're going to be 2018. Sheesh. Uh, and, and, well, one kid down in, uh, at the camp in Miami um, uh, showed tremendous skills um, and ran, you know, some crazy sub 4-4 speed and already had some good length to him and looked to be, you know, a future star as a cornerback and uh, already had the athleticism and everything like that. N never seen him before, didn't know who he was, and before the camp ended, we offered him a scholarship. So, I mean, it's that one of those things where, it's the, the, you know, his, his skills just jumped, uh, jumped so clearly off the field that they couldn't say no, you know. Right. And so that's the kind of cool stuff where a kid like that who's not gotten any exposure might get some exposure. There were also seniors, kids who were going into their senior year that didn't have any exposure that now have a scholarship offer. And you know aren't even ranked by you know the rivals and the two four sevens and the and and those kinds of folks. Scout.com. Right, because as we talked about 
the rivals rankings are a little bit uh, biased in that they specifically focus on the, the the athletes who come to their rivals camps, you know, where their people can be there evaluating the talent and all of that. Yeah. And so a lot of the kids who either don't have the time or the money or whatever it may be to go to those camps don't get maybe don't get represented as well yeah exactly it's not that that's the only thing that those evaluating organizations do it's just one of the uh, elements that they use it just tends to be an element that becomes rather significant in where the ranking is and so since those rankings have become so important to measuring whether your head coach is doing a good job or not because for whatever reason, we are easily, as a public, willing to defer uh, a level of expertise upon these groups that, uh, whether it's earned or not, we have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I know the credentials of all the talent evaluators that work for rivals, you know. But, but, but does everybody uh, believe those uh, rankings? you darn right. They, 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 they believe them and, they, you know, um, they use them, you know. And so that is a measure of whether or not a program is healthy or not. Right. Now, the reality is, is that the data says, generally speaking, if you have higher ranked recruiting classes according to these kinds of services, you're going to be more likely to win a lot of games and, and have a chance at championships. That is a fact. So it's not like it's totally out, out the left window that, mm-hmm. that these uh, rankings don't matter. They do matter. But it's just that there's also a lot of athletes that go that fall outside of those rankings that can also end up being very very good talents, and so at some point there needs to be a a fallback to the old days where you have to trust that your coaching staff has a certain capability at evaluating talent, and you have to believe in that coach's or that staff's ability to not only evaluate talent but identify the ones that are going to fit their system, and then go out and effectively recruit them, get them interested in your school, and get them there. Um, right. But, uh, but again, that's, that's a big, long discussion, so we won't go there <laughs> right now. Um, now, we did actually already get a couple of emails uh, from, uh, from uh, some listeners that were kind enough to give us a little bit of their time uh, off the first ca- pod- podcast. That's right. Um, on that website I referenced before, footballthrowdown.podomatic.com, um, there's like uh, pages for each individual episode. And so on the page for the first episode, we had a fan named AJ who said, love the media bias discussion. I would like to hear Alex's point of view on if college football can be saved from becoming the minor leagues for the NFL. So in terms of that, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about like whether um, football athletes college football athletes should be paid since universities particularly in the case of like the star players are selling like their jersey numbers you know or merchandise centered around them in whatever way you know to make thousands of dollars you know for the university or for this sports program you know and those players aren't seeing a cent of that and so there's some discussion as to whether that's fair or not you know or whether football players should be given like a stipend amount in order to pay for just general living expenses of like buying food for your apartment or going out to eat with your girlfriend, that sort of thing, um, which is getting to the whole complexity of whether these people are student athletes or whether they're you know paid uh, semi pro, prof- yeah, semi pro players. You know, which the people who are it's mostly the biggest factor for it is of course for the star athletes. You know, who have the legitimate um, case to make that they are contributing this money to the university, you know, through their own performance on the field. 
you know, which is a very small fraction of the overall, you know, uh, college football player base. So I don't think it's fair to base all that discussion around just the top tier athletes, but it's an interesting debate to be having, certainly, as well as the fact that, you know, um, I think it's good that college football, unlike uh, basketball or other sports, um, you have to go through at least your junior year of college before you can make it to the NFL, whereas with basketball, you know, you can get into the NBA right out of high school. Well, you know? I know, it's after one year of college. Oh, is it one year of college? One year, yeah, okay. in basketball. But um, the point is is that uh, with college football, it comes to be an interesting time whenever you have a player who reaches their junior year and they've been a successful player and have that potential to be drafted in the NFL um, what do they choose to do? You know, do they choose to take that opportunity and that money and seize it, or do they decide to stick with their team, you know, or stay to get their degree or whatever the case may be? Um, and I personally always have a large respect for the players that choose to stick around for their senior year because they care about their team or because they really want to win that championship or because they want to get their bachelor's degree or what have you. Um, I've always found that that is an admirable trait, you know. Now, of course, there's a variety of reasons why an athlete might choose to take that their junior year, you know, because of a fear of injury in their senior year or because of just the amount of money being waved in their face and because of their own financial circumstances, whatever they may be. You know, there are a multitude of reasons why it would be completely legitimate to choose to go your junior year. But personally, I've always found that the more that college football can be made a place for the student athlete versus a place for the you know semi pro you know NFL to uh, be kind of right. um, player, I think the former is the type of college football that I would like to see. Right. Well, now uh, how does that tie in though? Here, let me try to address the question about the media bias and how that ties in with the uh, you know the. Um, 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 you know, minor league for the NFL. The, the issue with the uh, media bias is that it already uh, the college football has evolved from being a sport that was covered uh, for the love of the game and uh, it was covered maybe with a bias to, to individual conferences and that sort of stuff to where now uh, there's so much attention given uh, to the players and stars are born uh, every weekend of, uh, from the beginning of their freshman year. And now even in in high school, you know, ESPN has gotten into televising high school football games. So the whole star aspect is just getting pushed earlier and earlier and earlier. And then once they latch on to those athletes, you know, the ESPNs, the Big Ten networks, the, the uh, uh, Fox Sports networks uh, of the world, NBC Sports, all of those uh, organizations they latch on to those big names whether it's Jameis Winston or you know whoever uh, Johnny Manziel from a few years ago they, the media latches onto them and makes these guys superstars okay and, and is immediately already projecting them into the NFL and saying where will they fit how are they going to do you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and and so it creates an environment where that's what the kids grow up watching Right, and mm-hmm. so it's going to motivate and continue to move in the same direction that kids come into the program uh, in college already thinking about their this being a stepping stone to their next step, which of course is the NFL. And 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 coaches have stopped telling the 
the reality of the situation because their their peer coaches are bragging about I can get you to the NFL. And now that it, that has become a proven effective message on the recruiting trail, very few coaches are willing to upfront tell people the truth, which is you know less than three percent of you guys are going to end up in the NFL. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, very few. And those that do get there are on average going to be there about three or three and a half years. That's the number. Uh, and so, and even a fewer fraction of those are going to actually make enough money uh, during their pro career to to be life changing type money. You know. Mm-hmm. So when you shrink it down to the ones that are going to get that that um, life changing money versus the number that actually enter college football, it's such a teeny tiny percentage. And yet, a bunch of kids go into their college uh, years now with the presumption that I'm going to be one of those select few. I'm going to be one of those that's good enough. Okay, and and the coaches aren't dispelling that because, in fact, they're kind of encouraging it. And then they're pointing at the pictures on the wall of the players that that have come through their program and and have have achieved that level of success. Right. right. And so the the media bias thing ends up just driving the the train towards more and more of a shift in focus from, I want to play for State U. When I grew up, for example, in, in Nebraska in the 70s, uh, you know, I dreamed, and while I played football, I dreamed of playing football at the University of Nebraska. It really didn't occur to me that much. It was a, it was a much more of a secondary thought that I dreamed of playing in the NFL or that I would play as a professional. But the idea that I might be able to play college football was something that I viewed as possible. And... Uh, Certainly, my ultimate dream of that would have been to play uh, for the U, right, the, the University right. of Nebraska down in Lincoln. So, so that whole focus has obviously shifted over those years, and and so many of the kids now don't have that loyalty to program; they now have the loyalty themselves, and that is a major dynamic change. Yeah, well, and in terms of what you're saying about just the oversaturation of media attention. And getting kind of getting back to the rate rivals ratings discussion, you know, there have been multiple opportunity or um, examples both within Nebraska and within other schools, you know, uh, cases where like a five star athlete who's supposed to be, you know, the best of the best or whatever arrives to campus and for whatever reason they don't perform at the level you expect them to. And that might be for a number of reasons, you know, because they've been playing at such a high level compared to everyone else just due to their physical talents in high school that they never needed to try hard. And now they finally get to college and they do have to, you know, train hard and play hard in order to compete at that level. And suddenly they find that they don't have the fortitude either physically or mentally to deal with that, or their heads just get such so inflated because of all the coverage they're getting, you know, as high school students and all the hype and the, you know, honey, tongued coaches who are coming to recruit them telling them how great they are you know that can have a bad effect on their mental state especially if they come to college and all of a sudden they're the big man on campus because they're the star recruit lose the hunger exactly so i think think there needs to be some amount of that you know uh that like you said the feeling of like i need to work hard to be able to play for this college that i love you know that sort of mentality I think it's something that is good to cultivate within the the players to keep them on the straight and narrow towards both being a good football player and, you know, 
hopefully getting a college degree if they're not the three percent that makes it to the NFL. Right. And I yeah right exactly. And and so uh, I guess bottom line is uh, I think your 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 summation there is um, you, you don't like that trend and um, um, you know to answer uh, AJ's question here is uh, you know your opinion is it's not a good thing for the sport. That, that we are moving in that direction and things that we might be able to do to, uh, you know, change that direction uh, would be would be good good ideas. And maybe that's a subject for a future future podcast for us if we uh, continue to, to uh, have success with this. Uh, um, you know, and that's one thing I probably should mention. Uh, I'll have you go through these uh, uh, sites again to give everybody another uh, chance to hear those. But, but also, you know, the whole point of our podcast here is to kind of put uh, on record in a real recording the conversations that have long been a part of Alex, you and I's conversations uh, as we, uh, as you grew up, uh, to just kind of hang around and, and enjoy each other's company and share something that we we both love. Uh, and so these conversations tended to to kind of wind and go uh, off topic every now and then. And we felt that a podcast that kind of uh, captured that might be fun for people to listen to when they when they're not having to worry too much about anything else when they're mowing a lawn or whatever uh, right. so that it's just kind of fun to do that uh, so it's not necessarily as structured as maybe some other podcasts where they're they're kind of hitting the bullets fast oh yeah no, we uh i did some podcasts uh while i was down at college and our motto was always that it was a conversational podcast and so we would sometimes go off on tangents and let the conversation wander a bit but that usually led to something either funny or interesting you know that you might not get from a podcast that was more you know just to going straight down what uh what the topics were right um and for those who are interested i'm going to repeat it again um website for our podcast is footballthrowdown.podomatic.com or you can uh, visit us on iTunes, Football Throwdown, College Football Throwdown on iTunes, or email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com, both in terms of questions you might have for the podcast as well as any sort of constructive criticism on what could be done to improve the podcast. We're always willing to hear from you guys about that sort of thing. So please don't hesitate. That's right. Um, okay, so um, uh, let's see here. You know, we got another piece of mail. Yes. Um, after the first podcast, which was nice, uh, and this uh, piece came from uh, Steve. Uh, I believe he's uh, down in Arkansas. And uh, um, okay, yes, sir. Got to got to put the mouth by the microphone. That's right. Okay. Uh, he said, "My question for the show is: Do you think our defensive tackle tandem, our being the University of Nebraska defensive tackle tandem of of uh, Maurice Collins and Vincent Valentine?" can be as dominant as Ndamukong Sue and Jared Crick were? And uh, I thought that was a good question and, and kind of might lead to an interesting discussion, especially for some, some of the folks that might listen to this who've, who've been following the sport uh, and specifically the University of Nebraska for a number of years. Uh, the quick and easy answer, I believe, is no. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, we have the potential to have two uh, players that are going to be pretty darn good. And as a tandem, will be the best we've had since Indomitian Sue and Jared Crick were were on the team. But uh, they are not going to necessarily come up close to that level. Uh, I, I think Indomitian Sue was a player that was a 
transcendent athlete. He was a guy that literally could could take over uh, games to some extent. Certainly, uh, you know, people will recall the the 2009 uh, Big 12 championship game in which we played Texas, and Indomitian Sue was pretty much throwing uh, Cody, uh, uh, what was his name, the quarterback at Texas, uh, 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 around like a rag doll and was pushing people around with one arm, <laughs> even though they were trying to double team him, he was just shoving people around. Um, but uh, um, anyway, I, I really think that, that when I compare what these young players we've got now are, are going to be able to do, I think that they're going to be able to be a dominant group, but, but not to that level. And Jared Crick was really outstanding and a perfect complement to Indomitian Sue's power because Jared was a, was a tremendous uh, tactician and, and uh, very precise in, in his techniques, and he was uh, surprisingly uh, strong and uh, you know, kind of long. So uh, is it Colt McCoy? Colt McCoy, not That's Cody. It. Colt McCoy, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but it, it, uh, the question that uh, Steve brought up prompted me to to, to reflect more about uh, you know Nebraska's um, uh, defensive tackle history and and you know how did Indomitian Sue and Jared Crick even match up to uh, the historic uh, defensive tackle duos of um, of our history uh, certainly since the time that I began watching it in that uh, late 60s time frame. And the answer, I think, is um, I, I, certainly Indomitian and Jared are right up there, but I would actually rank them third. I think there's two groups of uh, defensive tackles that would emerge in my list ahead of Indomitian. Now, I want to point out very clearly, uh, individually, the, the most dominant defensive tackle I've ever seen is Indomitian Sioux, okay? Yeah. But, but as a collection of talent and group, uh, especially among starters and maybe first alternate uh, player, uh, I would uh, put a, a group of uh, uh, Larry Jacobson and Rich Glover um, from the uh, 71 team uh, ahead of uh, that group of Indomitian and Jared. Uh, Larry Jacobson and Rich Glover were both All-Americans. They were both physically dominant players f- for their time. Uh, they seemed like monsters out there compared to the guys around them. They were, they were big, tall, square guys that just were uh, had long arms and long reach and just tended to fling people around and, and, and just swallow people up. It was really impressive to watch them play. And then not only that, we also had an All-American defensive end by the name of Willie Harper and some other really outstanding young players on that crew that gave them depth and support. So it was an outstanding combination. Um, and then uh, I would also probably uh, have to place uh, the, our, our mid-'90s team uh, that we had, with, which, which was just absolutely loaded with talent uh, that, that included both of the Peter brothers, uh, uh, Jason and Christian Peter, at defensive tackle and, and, a, and a gluttony of outstanding defensive ends in uh, Jared Tomich, Grant Wistrom, Mike Rucker, uh, Kyle Vandenbosch a little later after that, Chad Kelsey. I mean, that whole mid and late 90s time frame had some just phenomenal talent uh, at the defensive end and, and defensive tackle positions. Terry Keneally, uh, all in that same time frame. So, so as a collection of talent on any given team, uh, I think they uh, definitely outstripped what was going on in 2008, 2009 with Indomitian and Jared Crick. Because mm-hmm. uh, after that, there wasn't much. Uh, ben Martin, I think, and you know, uh, was maybe the third, and I don't. No one would remember him. So, um, uh, based on his play, anyway. So, um, anyway, that's uh, kind of my thoughts on on some of that. But it's quite remarkable, actually, 
when I started uh, kind of jotting down all the players. With Indomitian and Sue, you did have Barry Turner and Pierre Allen, a couple of good defensive ends. Uh, and then, uh, but in the, going back to the early 1980s, you had the Williams brothers at defensive ends. You had uh, Danny Noonan and Neil Smith in the late to mid 80s. Uh, Broderick Thomas, Kenny Walker at defensive tackle, who was a deaf player, who was just an outstanding player, one of the most remarkable athletes I've, I've ever seen. Ended up playing for the Denver Broncos for many years and was phenomenal. How did he listen to the, uh, well, I guess he's a defensive huddle, Right, so. he's a defensive tackle, and they would have special signals for him and all that sort of stuff. There was a whole, there was a guy, a person that was put on staff just to help with communication during practice and everything, just for Kenny. And, uh, and he became an All-American uh, at defensive tackle at Nebraska. Quite wow. a, a remarkable story. So anyway, cool. but what a great tradition as I was kind of looking through it uh, and, and writing down the names. I'm like, wow, we really did. There was a time there in the late uh, 90s when if you had done a summary of, you know, what was defensive end you, so to speak, the, the <laughs> school that was producing the, the most NFL defensive end, it would have definitely been Nebraska uh, because it was just a whole – uh, you know, continuous flow of great defensive right. ends coming out of that program. So, anyway, some great stuff there, and what a great question. So, uh, and maybe as a teaser for the next podcast, the next podcast we're going to be talking a little bit more about the upcoming season because we're, at this point, we're about 75 days away. Um, we just had Father's Day here, and uh, and now uh, we're into the stretch run with uh, conference meetings and um, kickoff events. And then uh, spring practice, I mean, excuse me, uh, fall camp will begin here in, in earnest in early August, which is really only about uh, five, five, six weeks away. Mm -hmm. That's right. And the final thing we wanted to talk about today was kind of to move it back to the conference-wide discussion, specifically the Big Ten in this case, talking about the um, national perception of the Big Ten, uh, because remember that before the uh, – before the bowl game season began last year, there was a lot of talk amongst, you know, the national media really kind of downplaying the Big Ten and uh, not having really high expectations for us during the bowl season. But then we came out and actually did a lot better than a lot of people were thinking we were going to do in terms of, like, how many of our teams won or how many of our teams competed on a, you know, competitive level with the other teams, even if we lost yeah. to those teams in other conferences. And of course the, you know, um, you know, um, I don't want to say surprising. No, it was it's okay. You can <laughs> to call say it that. surprising win for Ohio state, you know, winning the yeah. championship. I, I, I think when the, uh, when the four teams of the college football playoff began, uh, Ohio state would have been identified as the fourth seed almost universally everywhere, except in the state of Ohio. <laughs> and and, uh, and it was absolutely a surprise that they were able to go on a two-game run and beat in back-to-back -back games uh, Alabama and then, and then Oregon uh, mm -hmm. the way that they did. Uh, so um, it, was, it was a surprise. And, and that's the thing is that, um, you know, up until that point, uh, the, the national um, storyline and, and uh, perception – of the of the conference was that that we continued to be the slow plotting conference that still had a long way to go, and then uh, because of this one see uh, one uh, bowl, season. Uh, bowl season, all of a sudden the perceptions began to change. Now the question becomes, uh, how do they sustain that, or can they sustain that? And if you look at the early preseason predictions that are going on now, 
uh, it would appear that you know there are two teams that most conference uh, or most analysts would say uh, are national championship type contenders, and that would be Ohio State and to a much lesser extent Michigan State. Um, but certainly I would be surprised if Michigan State didn't find themselves in the top ten in most preseason magazines, and Ohio State will probably be in the top three of almost every uh, you know uh, preseason magazine that comes out. So there's definitely a lot uh, of opportunity there uh, for the Big Ten to, to, to make some hay with, uh, with the, the gains they were able to make by having a good showing. Right, and then there's been a lot of publicity for um, one member of the Big Ten, specifically Michigan in this case, because of the big splash hire they made a few months ago, getting Jim Harbaugh and giving him this enormous contract that has a lot of the national media very excited for what he can do, a coach of his caliber can do with the talent he has in Michigan, which has a lot of people pretty excited for the potential that he brings to Michigan and if he can bring them back to being competitive with Ohio State. Right. Uh, although one topic that we did want to address was kind of an interesting dichotomy. If you compare Jim Harbaugh, who's a you know uh, new coach this year within the Big Ten, versus another uh, new college coach within the Big Ten, our own coach Mike Riley for Nebraska. Um, despite the fact that Riley is much more of a you know not lesser higher in terms of talent necessarily, but lesser higher in terms of impact and you splash. know s- splash, yes. Uh, you would think that people wouldn't be as you know wound up about like really expecting you know championships from him right out of the gate. But Nebraska fans, because we just came off of a series of seven years with Bo Pelini, where he was winning nine games every season, a pretty impressive stat if you look at that time frame of uh, coaches and teams during the during that time period. Uh, we're expecting him to do that well or better, you know, versus Jim Harbaugh, who's expected if he can win seven or eight games, people are going to be satisfied with that, Michigan fans and the national media, and, and, even and, though he is the one who's being paid many, many more millions of dollars than Mike Riley. Right. Well, and it's not just about the money, but it's just a, it's an interesting thing to listen to the national media uh, basically give uh, Michigan's, uh, you know, their expectation of what Michigan's going to do this year and seem to be content to say, yeah, if, if Jim Har- Harbaugh can win seven or eight games, then he will have done a good job. And, 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 they sh- and Michigan fans should be happy about that. And even here in Michigan, talking with Michigan fans, generally a lot of them feel the same way, that they, they seem poised and prepared to have an eight-win season and be okay with it. Um, whereas because Nebraska, even though we didn't – have uh, the greatest relationship with our previous head coach, Bo Pelini, we did witness him winning and finding a way to, to p- produce nine wins every year. And so uh, the idea that, that our new coach could come in and, and only win eight games would, uh, would be viewed by many within the Nebraska family and, frankly, nationally as kind of a disappointing season. So it just seems odd and ironic almost that those two can be juxtaposed against each other, and the guy that is going to the, the the larger university with way more money and way more access to athletes and way more talent, if you want to believe all the recruiting uh, numbers that have occurred over the last five years, uh, that that he is 
queued up to have way more opportunity to, to have success than, say, a, a Mike Riley, and yet the national perception is the opposite. And now a big reason for that, it's called schedule, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it gets to the heart of this, which is you, you begin to look at, at how the new divisions are kind of laying uh, the land here in the Big Ten, and you have the Big Ten East, which uh, includes in it basically four major programs at this point, programs that look to be uh, stable enough and or have enough history that they are likely to be very good football teams going forward for an extended period of time. And those programs, of course, would be Ohio State, Michigan State, and then Michigan and Penn State. And so the, the question becomes what happens when they begin to beat each other up, right? And, um, and, and, and so it's going to be tough to fight through that division, whereas you look at what, what Nebraska is going to face in that eastern, uh, excuse me, that western division, and it's not quite as formidable mm-hmm. in name, right? right. And, and we are somewhat familiar with this having come from the Big 12 right. uh, and the whole Big 12 North versus Big 12 South. Yeah. So we're, we're familiar with that. Yeah, we discussed this on the previous podcast we did as well, this mm-hmm. kind of discrepancy in what kind of advantages and disadvantages that gives to Nebraska in terms of recruiting, but also in terms of making it to the Big Ten championship right. game. Chances and things of that to nature. Win, win games, etc. But what it, what is interesting is to look at the expectation that they have for Harbaugh. You also have a relatively new coach at PSU in uh, Franklin and uh, who is doing remarkable things in terms of recruiting and is really restocking that program. And if he's if he's as good a coach as people say he is, uh, and he continues to recruit the way he's going to recruit, they're not going to go away and hide anytime soon. They're going to be another heck of a challenge, and it's going to be a real challenge for Michigan to to build its way up through those ranks and get back to the Michigan Ohio State kind of rivalry. Uh, uh, unless he, they see Michigan State falter. And, again, I don't see that happening. I think D'Antonio's established a pretty stable program there, and it looks to be on solid ground. And then you've got Penn State, who's not going away. So the, the climb's not going to be an easy one, and, and mm-hmm. it's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, and I, I, it's one of the exciting things about the sport of college football that we both love is the dynamics of the change. It's always changing, and uh, you know, three or four years ago, uh, Penn State was a dead football program. There was no way it was going to take them 20 years. People were saying to reemerge, and I think you may recall I said, "No, it won't." Uh, <laughs> I was very confident that the, uh, the the commitment to the program and that the resources at that university they would find a way. Now they were helped along the way by NCAA rules to soften uh, their punishment quite substantially. But uh, they also made some great decisions in, in the hires that they made when they hired uh, Bill O'Brien and then uh, followed that up with, uh, with this Franklin fella who has who is just kind of carried the torch on forward and, like they aren't missing a beat. So very impressive what they've been able to accomplish, and mm-hmm. it'll just make it interesting to see how that plays out. And I'm very excited about what Mike Riley's doing at Nebraska, and I think he's He's really uh, come out very organized, very strong in terms of his brand and what he wants to establish at Nebraska. And if he can succeed in, in, in putting together the kind of talent that he wants and have some stability on his coaching staff, uh, I'm reasonably confident that, uh, that Nebraska will emerge as, as the, or if not the, one of the you know, two, say, best teams in that Western division mm-hmm. so it'll it'll make for a lot of interesting games didn't you also say that uh wisconsin has a new coach this season wisconsin also has a new coach his name is 
Paul Christ, and uh, he is actually coming home, so to speak. He played uh, at, at Wisconsin. He coached at Wisconsin, was the offensive coordinator at Wisconsin, uh, is very entrenched in the, uh, the, the Wisconsin way, if you will, going back to Barry Alvarez. And uh, so he is a really good fit for them. And obviously the previous coach, Anderson, wasn't maybe as good a fit because he came in, did some good things, certainly had some success, but uh, wasn't happy and bolted at the first opportunity, in fact, taking Mike Riley's old job. So <laughs> so uh, quite an interesting turn of events, really, and it'll, it'll be uh, fascinating to see how quickly uh, Paul Chris is able to put his stamp back on that program. But I'm just curious, and you may not know this because we haven't been following Wisconsin football that much, but do you know what like the expectation for him is? Like, is he in a Harbaugh situation where, oh, if he wins, you know, seven, six, seven, eight games, you know, he's okay, you know, versus a expectation for him to be strong right out of the gate? Well, I, I'm gonna say to you that that knowledgeable fans and the national media are gonna be expecting Wisconsin to be in that that eight win category and maybe even nine, primarily because they have a fairly easy schedule. Outside of, they have a non-conference game with Alabama uh, early on, and obviously they're expected to lose that game. Um, but um, the rest of their non-conference schedule and their conference schedule is about as generous of a schedule as they could get. Uh, one of their dip- most difficult games, I believe, is going to be playing a game in Lincoln uh, against us. Um, so they don't they don't see Ohio State, they don't see Penn State, I don't believe. Uh, so they don't really get a lot of the the, the uh, the bigger schools uh, from that western side, mm-hmm. you know. So, all right. Well, I think that wraps up our Big Ten discussion for today, and what we wanted to get to for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and one one maybe final note was we talked a little bit about uh, our next podcast. We'll we'll try to focus a little bit more in on the on the Big Ten and where we think things are going to fall for this right. year, kind of do pre-season the preseason uh, uh, things, w- with a caveat that maybe we'll be able to change our minds after after fall camps are over, because you never know who's going <laughs> to get hurt and, and, you know, all those kinds of things that kind of emerge during the those, uh, you know, 30 practices or so that ki- that teams get between the beginning of camp and, uh, and, the, and the first game. But, oh, I know, the one thing we did want to talk about, and it, and it ties to national perception, is uh, this non-conference season uh, for the Big Ten is huge. You've mm, got the Alabama-Wisconsin game I just mentioned. You've got Oregon playing at Michigan State early in the season. You've got Nebraska going to Miami at Miami Hurricanes playing in the Orange Bowl. Uh, you've got uh, Michigan playing BYU and uh, Utah in the non-conference schedule. Nebraska plays BYU at home in their very first game for Mike Riley. Uh, um, and uh, Ohio State plays Virginia Tech, the only team that beat them last year. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a little revenge on that deal, I'm sure. And so there's quite a few uh, national implication-type games that are going to be going on this year uh, for the Big Ten. And how they do in those non-conference games is going to become – oh. Minnesota plays TCU also. That's right. That's another That's one. So, one. So so there's some big games going on there. Yeah, well, that uh, um, the Alabama game, I mean, I pretty much expect Alabama to win that one. But uh, but Michigan State-Oregon, I feel like that, that could be a very interesting game. Yes. Because they've played each other in the past a I few agree. times. I agree. But, um, yeah, we're looking forward to uh, doing episode three of the podcast. Um we're trying to see what sort of schedule we can set up because we'd like to get this to some sort of 
you know, bi-weekly or, you know, have some sort of set schedule so we can have a certain day when we know the podcast is going to come out. Um, but we're still trying to work that out here in the early days of college football throwdown. But uh, as I said before, if you have any questions for us, feel free to email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. Give us some ratings and reviews on iTunes or Podomatic. You know, give us any comments if you want to uh, talk to us about what you'd like to see from the podcast in the future. Or, or if you don't like what we're talking about or you have a subject you'd like to add, uh, we'd love to hear from you. That's right. So thank you very much for listening out there, college football fans, and we will see you next time.